you go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John. Um, we're in John 16, finishing that up today. For those of you that know me, you know how much I absolutely loathe preaching from a handheld mic, but I just felt like maybe you could hear me better like this. And so for those of you that go like, actually, it's the first week I've ever heard you, pastor. You know, don't tell me that because I will not be preaching from a handheld mic after this goes away. And the reason being is uh, entertainers use handheld mics, preachers use lapel mics. And so people will ask me, Pastor Andy, do you like so-and-so? And usually my first question is, do they preach from a handheld mic? You know, Pastor, do you like so-and-so as a preacher? I saw him on the internet. Well, does he preach from a handheld mic? Yes, no, I don't like him. <laughs> Second question would be, is, it, does he, is he an expositor? Does he preach the Bible? Um, that's the second question. No, he doesn't. Uh, then no, I've never heard of him. All right. Enough of that. Um, we finish up John 16, and we are finishing up basically the upper room or the farewell discourse uh, this morning. And so we're going to start in verse number um, 25 and finish up the chapter. So down to verse number 33. Jesus says this to those disciples, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not, figure, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to your own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, sweetest name we know. You are the great overcomer. You've overcome it all. Whatever we bring even this morning that wants to rob that peace, you've overcome that. Whether it's our own sin or the sins of others or sickness or addiction or whatever other trouble, financial trouble, whatever it may be that we bring to you that we hold in our hearts even today, You've overcome those things, Jesus. May we trust in you. May we know that for those of us in this room that believe in you, that there's coming a day where as we saw last week in the text, that our sorrow will be turned into joy at seeing you, at beholding you, at looking at you. We'll be transformed to be like you by just seeing you. And until that day, hold us, hold us in faith, keep us, Use even your word today to, to stir our affections and to hold us, to anchor us, to keep us, to speak words of truth that may transform us and may grow, it may grow us and change us to be more and more like you. 
Jesus, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the work that you have done on our behalf. We're thankful that you have saved us. You have filled us with your spirit. Hold us fast in this time. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. So like I said, we uh, finish up the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse, if you will. Um, that's what, uh, where we are. So it's Jesus's final words to his disciples. It's uh, hours now, maybe even minutes before uh, Jesus's crucifixion and his death. And so uh, the, the upper room discourse began in chapter 13. It spanned for about four chapters. So 13, 14, 15, the end of 16. In chapter 17, where we'll pick up, Jesus stops uh, speaking to the disciples and begins to speak to the Father. In chapter 17, we have Jesus's high priestly prayer and he stops just instructing them and he begins to pray for them. And so what we hold here in our hands in this text is Jesus's final words pre-crucifixion to his disciples. That throughout the night, Jesus has been making uh, predictions. He's been speaking of prophecies that are gonna happen. A great number of things are going to occur um, after or during Jesus's uh, final days. He's spoken about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But here, Jesus predicts um, the, the, the disciples, their um, abandonment. Here he predicts their temporary abandonment. Here he predicts these disciples' spiritual failure. And we have in this text is kind of a... a, a an oxymoron, if you will, a contradiction almost, because the disciples say, oh no, now we understand. We understand everything you've been telling us, Jesus. We got it now. And Jesus then says, do you really understand? Do you really believe? Because guess what? There's gonna come a moment in just a few short hours when you will abandon me. You will fail me. That Jesus, we see that in verse number 32. Look at what he says in 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. A somber word. Yet I won't be alone for the father is with me. That Jesus will be arrested and Jesus will be tried and later Jesus will even be crucified. And these disciples, they too will be tried. Their faith in Christ is about to be tested. It's about to be tried. And here's the deal, they will fail. Every one of them will fail. So if you think about the 12 disciples that Jesus has been pouring into for the last three years, and now think about what's about to unfold. Judas right now is betraying Jesus with the high priest. Peter will deny Christ three times. The one that Jesus says, you are a rock, right? You're a rock. Your name's no longer gonna be Cephas. Your name is now gonna be Petros, Peter, for you're a rock. And he will not be a rock, but he will fail three times the other 10 disciples will abandon Jesus. The only one that will be near to Christ at the time of his crucifixion will be John, the author of this gospel. Jesus will cry out to John from the cross, but the other nine disciples, and or actually the other 10 disciples, they will not even be near. They will watch Jesus's crucifixion from afar for fear. So these words, they're important words. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is giving them truths that will anchor their soul in a time of, uh, of, spiritual, of spiritual turmoil and even spiritual failure. 
that what Jesus is saying in this moment, the, the truths that are laced into this text, Jesus is saying that a spiritual storm is coming to, coming to you. Now batten down the hatches, right? Batten down the hatches. I'm gonna put an anchor. Here's the anchor that's gonna hold your soul fast in this time of spiritual turmoil, in this time of even spiritual failure. We have to recognize that, that they don't stand strong. They fail, they run, they cower in fear. Last week, as Luann and I got to do a lot of flying, uh, one minute I was, uh, I, one moment I was kind of looking out as we were coming into land, uh, into the Dominican, and I was looking out the window, and I, I was thinking about the story of the airplane that landed in the Hudson a few years ago, and they've made a movie, it's like Captain Sully, and I was thinking about that, and the only thing that Captain Sully said to the people, the passengers, was just uh, prepare for impact. Like, and I just thought, what an unsettling thing. Like, you feel like the plane and like, we were on, there was one of our, our little legs that was like that miserable flying experience where it's just bumpy the whole time and half the people get their drinks and half of them don't. So you got this entitlement going on. Like I paid for my ticket. You know, I want my ginger ale. That's what I always get, apple juice or ginger ale. I want my ginger ale. Where's my ginger ale? But like, how unsettling it would be to hear, prepare for impact. And then they land that mug in the, in the Hudson. And in a way, that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Prepare for impact. It's about to get real, boys. It's about to get real. And the truth is, you will not, you will not stand. The Spiritual Depression, it's a book that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. Spiritual depression and spiritual attacks and even what the Puritans called the dark night of the soul, that that's a real thing. I'm currently listening to a, a set of teachings uh, on the Pilgrim's Progress. So it's a book that John Bunyan wrote in the 1600s and I talk about it a ton. And the reason why I talk about it is to hopefully pique your curiosity. So you go, hey, I think I'm gonna try to read that book because it's a fantastic book and it's an allegory of the Christian um, uh, struggle or the Christian life. And right now I'm listening to a 19 part teaching series done by uh, Ligonier Ministries put it out. Uh, Derek Thomas is teaching on it. And so it's 19 teachings from the Pilgrim's Progress. And it's actually right now on Amazon Prime. Pastor Brian has told me that. And so like, if you have Amazon Prime, like you talk about binge watching or binge listening, this would be fantastic for you to listen to. And I, I guarantee you this, like you think about, there's no way I'm gonna listen to 19 lectures on the Pilgrim's Progress. You think that, listen to the first three and just see if it doesn't draw you in to listen. But as I've been listening again and afresh to uh, Bunyan's take on the Christian life, I've been reminded of how much uh, he talks about uh, of Christian's experience. In fact, when Christian picks up in the beginning of the story, he's not a Christian yet. His name isn't Christian. His name is actually No Grace. And as No Grace has his Bible in hand and this evangelist has just basically shared the gospel with him and he now feels compelled to go and to find Christ and to find the author of this book and to, to be saved. It's uh, remarkable uh, at how uh, Bunyan tells the story and he tells it as all of the obstacles that there are for Christian to overcome. That at first Christian will go to the wicked gate to the narrow way, which is where he'll be saved. From the wicked gate, he'll go from the wicked gate to the cross and from the cross, ultimately to the celestial city, to heaven, where we're all going. And the whole book is a book about spiritual struggle and about obstacles that come. That oftentimes people will say, come to Jesus and all your problems will disappear. If you don't have any hope, come to Jesus, you'll find hope. If you don't have any joy, come to Jesus, you'll find joy. If you don't have... And I would say, if you don't have any problems, come to Jesus and you'll have plenty of problems. 
And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And faith oftentimes is a fight. It is a struggle. And spiritual failure is a real thing. Now listen, when I use the terminology spiritual failure, I'm not talking about abandoning your faith or renouncing your faith. What I am talking about is I'm talking about failing in your faith. I'm talking about being tempted and being tried and giving into that temptation. I'm talking about failing. I'm talking about failing to take a stand, failing to stand up, failing to stand in the time of temptation. I'm talking about losing your temper and giving into temptation. I'm talking about giving in and going down that wormhole that takes you to looking at lustful images. I'm talking about making ungodly decisions. I'm talking about being unfaithful in your disciplines. And we've all been there. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher who never used a handheld mic, he said, trials teach us, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. And oftentimes what we're made of is very weak and it's very fickle. The biblical imagery that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter four is this. He says that, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jars of clay are weak and fragile as opposed to jars of stone or jars of metal, jars of, uh, of silver. No, no, no. What he says here is we are jars of clay. We have this treasure. We have the gospel. We have salvation. We have Jesus. We have the spirit inside of us. And yet outwardly, you and I are but clay. We are weak and we are fragile and we're easily broken. And in times of spiritual turmoil, in times of spiritual failure, in times of spiritual depression, it's as if we've been broken open and what is on the inside really comes through. Paul says that God puts this treasure in us, in something that is weak, so that he can show the strength. He can show his strength, the surpassing power, Paul says, that it belongs to God and not to us. You know, it's a tribute to a musician to be able to play a musical instrument that's well-built and well-made, to be able to, to play that well. That's one thing. But a real tribute to a musician is for someone to take a piece of junk and make that thing sing. You know what I'm saying? To pick up a, a, an instrument that really wasn't crafted or made that well and make that thing, you know, really play. Um, my kids are all musical uh, by their on their mom's side of the family, not by mine, but they all are musical. And so even when they were little, I mean, Safira already has a little, one of those little plastic toy uh, guitars that you can buy, you know, at Walmart that costs like six bucks. They're made of plastic and the, the strings are made out of like 80 pound test fishing line. You know what I'm saying? Like those kinds of things. And we had a friend, Lou and I have a friend that's very musical and he's a great instrumentalist. And he would come over and pick up like Kennedy or Grayson's little plastic Walmart to, uh, guitar, and that mug, he would start to tune it. Bing, 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 bing. And he'd get that thing in tune. Next thing you know, he'd be picking some song out on it. I mean, that's a real musician, right? A guy that buys a Martin guitar off the internet and spends $2,000 and can play it. You go like, okay, that's one thing. But a guy to play a $7 Walmart guitar, like that's a real musician. And it's a real tribute to Jesus. For Jesus to use broken 
instruments like you and I and like these disciples in order to advance his kingdom and to build his church. And that is what he's used. That we can look at great heroes of the faith, men like Martin Luther and men like Martin Lloyd-Jones and men like John Calvin. And we can even go further, even further and further back. And we can even look at these disciples and every one of them were weak. Every one of them were jars of clay, just like you and I. And yet what we see in this text of scriptures, Jesus chose these men. Jesus being the sovereign one, knowing all things, knowing that they would be tested and tried and even knowing that they would fail. And yet Jesus sovereignly chose them to advance his kingdom and to build his church. And in the same way, he has chosen you and I. So even when you fail, what will you do? It's called repentance. You repent and you keep going. In fact, that's what we see in this text of scripture is I think Jesus is giving us in here, Jesus is giving us uh, some ways that we can keep going, some ways that we can keep enduring. Because here's the truth, spiritual failure is not inevitable. You don't have to fail. These men will fail, Peter will fail, but then there will come a time when Peter won't fail. Peter will cower in fear and and won't speak out and Peter will deny Jesus, but then Peter will testify to Christ and he'll get the snot beat out of him. And guess what he'll do after that? He'll keep preaching and keep going. And then they crucify him. And then Peter will say, hey, you know what? I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down and they will do it. And Peter will submit to it. And so spiritual failure isn't always inevitable. The truth is, is when we fail, we should learn from our failure so that we can grow and we can allow God's strength to work through us, not our strength. The, the point of failure isn't so that you grow stronger. The point of failure is so that you depend more and more on him. The apostle Paul is saying, I'm constantly being made weak and that is God's plan for me because when I'm the weakest, that's when he's the strongest. So Jesus isn't leading you to be stronger and stronger and stronger. He's leading you down a path to make you weaker and weaker and weaker so that you can depend on him. So his strength can be made true. Here's the three ways that we can overcome spiritual failure. And I've seen folks that have failed. Now the failure becomes their new identity. Their their, their identity is now in who they were. Their identity is in their failure. Their identity is wrapped up in the sin that has taken them on. And our identity is to never be in that. Our identity is to always be in Christ and who Christ is and Christ's perfection. So here are the three truths that I want us to see from this text. Number one, even when you fail, keep on reading and keep on praying. Never stop reading God's word. Never stop studying it, even when it doesn't make sense, as we'll see, and keep on praying. Number two, be totally assured of God's love for you. Irregardless of your failure, irregardless of the fickleness of your faith, you should be totally assured if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, then you should be totally assured of God's love for you. And number three, take courage, take heart. Know that Jesus is an overcomer. Now I give you all three of those on the front end so that if my voice gives out, (laughs) 
you'll have them already. I told Pastor Brian, we might have to tag team this mug and the, uh, my notes are all up here. But I think we're gonna be all right. All right, verse number 25, start at the top. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but we'll tell you plainly about the Father. And I'm sure all of the disciples said, thank you. Why did you not do that from the beginning? What's the purpose of the figures of speech? But we'll get there. Verse number 26, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Notice first that Jesus admits that, some, that understanding his word and his words is sometimes difficult. He admits that from the beginning. Jesus, I mean, we have plenty of examples of this when we look into the gospels. We see even Jesus spoke in, uh, in parables when Jesus spoke. And the reason why he did that, it was very special. I mean, it was very specific. He tells us the reason was, was for the unbelievers and the religious who didn't know him. It was to conceal the truths of the kingdom. But for those of us who were humble, it was to reveal the truths of the kingdom. But nevertheless, we can look at, I mean, I've got a book in my office that's about this thick on the parables of Christ. And so why is it this thick? Because some of them are very tough to understand. And Jesus is admitting that. Jesus is saying here that I've spoken to you in the past in figures of speech, but in the future, the contrast, I will tell you plainly. Um, what he means by figures of speech is this, that the meaning will not lay on the surface or does not lay on the surface but it must be searched for and thought about. That's what he's getting at here. Why does God do this? Why does he make the Bible hard to understand at times? Well, here is why. It isn't that God is just testing our determination or testing our patience or even testing our grit, but it works so that we may see, as Paul said, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is coming true even as we read the Bible, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. John Calvin said about this text, he said that the Lord allows us to be stupefied for a time. Thank you, Lord, it's just for a time. But he allows us to be stupefied. He allows us to be puzzled for a season. Why? So that we will learn our own spiritual poverty before he brings clarity to us. That if it was all easy to understand, then you and I, we would take credit for our own brilliance and our own wisdom. We would take credit for our own intelligence rather than humbly seeking the Lord for understanding. That when we recognize our spiritual ignorance and we seek the Lord for insight, then the Lord gives us the light and we glorify him and not ourselves. Pastor John Piper, he uses this illustration. It's the difference between when he says you, when we're studying the Bible, it's like the difference between raking and, and digging that what we need to learn to do is like raking leaves isn't much. And I've used this illustration because I think it's gold. I think it's great. But raking leaves isn't much work, right? It's not a ton of work involved in raking leaves. Like I can go and rake the leaves in my yard. And at the end of the day, I'm, I'm barely tired or barely sore. I mean, I'm not saying it's not work, but it's just not hard work, not hard work like digging. I mean, dig for 10 minutes and your hands are sore, unless your hands are callous like some of yours, but your hands are sore and your back's tired, right? But if you rake leaves all day, guess what? The only thing you're gonna get at the end of that day is leaves. That's all you're gonna get is leaves. But if you dig 
who knows what you may find. As John Piper says, you might find a diamond, right? You might find a precious rock dug, hidden down. But digging's a lot of work and nobody wants to dig. But if you dig, you might find a diamond. If you just rake, all you're going to find is leaves. And the same thing, same thing is true with God's word. If you're just fast reading it and not putting much thought into it, but you're just reading it so you can check off and say, yes, I've read God's word today, or I'm working through this Bible study plan, or I want to read, have my verse of the day, and so let me grab that. And you're just raking. All you're ever going to get from that is leaves. You're never going to find a diamond. You got to dig and dig hard and dig deep to find diamonds. And listen, there's diamonds in here. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. I've been speaking to you in figures of speech so that you'll see that this word and my word isn't from you, but it's from, from me. It's from God. It's from, it's spiritual in nature. And you're going to have to dig to understand it. And then he says, but now I'm going to just speak plainly to you. And oh, we got it. And they don't have it. Here's the truth. We commune with God primarily through reading God's word and through prayer. That in times of spiritual depression, in times of spiritual failure, in times of spiritual turmoil, right? The last thing you, you, you feel like doing is communing with God and yet that's what you need. Like we even seen this back in the first sin. Adam and Eve, they hid from God. They covered themselves over with fig leaves they understood that they were naked and yet only God is the one who can provide forgiveness and healing. Whenever we feel like we've let God down, we, we feel that God is distant, but yet it's God's word that leads us to worship. Paul writes in Romans 10th chapter, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ. And what you need most in times of spiritual turmoil, in times of spiritual failure, what you need most is the word of Christ. You need faith. That's what you need to, what's gonna hold you? What's gonna anchor you? It's your faith. How is that faith gonna come? The faith is gonna come by hearing and hearing God's word, by digging and studying and meditating and thinking about God's and God uh, through his word, by listening to sermons. That's how it's gonna come. And second, never stop praying. Never stop hearing from God. Never stop reading. You got to keep on digging and don't ever stop praying either that Jesus reminds them yet again that their access to the Father has been opened up through Jesus. Jesus is opening up access to the Father so that we can pray to him. Verse number 26, in that day you will ask in my name and I don't say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Jesus has repeatedly told the disciples that now they are to ask the Father in Jesus' name. A new way to pray, you now pray in my name. And this is Jesus' role as an intercessor. But here Jesus is further clarifying that role for us. That Jesus' intercessor doesn't mean that the Father will, will be further away from them. He's not saying the Father is going to be more distant from them. In fact, the opposite. The Father is going to be closer to them. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you've got to work your way up the chain of command. Pray to Jesus and Jesus is going to pray to the Father. No, he's saying, you've got to direct access through me. My intercessory work will be an intercession of blood. It'll be a testimony of my work that I'm going to do on the cross for you. And you, in fact, now have direct access to the Father. Remember the disciples came and said, will you teach us to pray? John taught his disciples to pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. And how does Jesus say, you start off praying like this, our Father who art in heaven. 
hallowed be your name. You have direct access to the Father. And you've got to remember that in times of spiritual turmoil, in times of spiritual failure, in times of struggle, in times of sin even. You have to remember that you still have a direct access to the Father. And as Jesus adds this Father, he loves you because you love me, because you love the Son, which brings us to the second point. You and I, we need to be totally assured of the Father's love. Verse number 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. How many times in the upper room discourse has Jesus reminded them of his love for them and the Father's love for him? Why do you think he said this so many times? Because it's the same thing you and I struggle with. Does God love you? Uh, yes, but does God really love you? Does God like you? Does God receive you? Does God want you to spend time with him? Does God want, does he, does he look at you with warm and affectionate feelings? And a lot of you say, yes, but. And what Jesus is saying time and time again, no. The only but is receiving me and believing in me. And once you do, then to know, rest assured that the Father loves you. Again, Jesus is saying here, listen, I don't have to go and persuade the Father who is reluctant to love you to love you. There's no reluctance in God's love towards those who believe in Christ is what he is saying. That the very heart of the Father is a heart that wants to love those who love and believe in his son, Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of the Father. It's anything but a reluctant love. John Calvin, again, he said this, this is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that we have the heart of the heavenly father, the sovereign, eternal God of the universe. He loves us as soon as we place our faith in his son. That we've seen in other times in the upper room discourse. And we could say it here as well, that God loves the world in a very generic sense, but that's not the type of love that Jesus is describing here. We see in all the way back, John, the third chapter, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And every person that you see, it's been made in the image of God. And you can say, God loves that person. And that is true. He loves them. But here what Jesus is speaking about is a very special love and a special grace that God feels, an affection that God feels for those of us who trust in Christ. I, I feel in so many different, in so many ways, I feel that uh, my family, uh, fell in love with uh, Luann, who's now my wife, uh, maybe long before you and I fell in love with each other, my, my family. And, and I could say the same thing is true about her family. Love, love, you know, my family loved Luann. My grandparents, the, my, the first time they met Luann, they, they loved her. They cared about her. They were like, oh my gosh, she's, you know, this young, beautiful, confident, uh, outspoken, hungry woman. Like, oh my gosh, this is so great. And, and my, my, uh, my sister, Missy, that almost immediately, Luann and Missy became like best friends. And 29 years later, they're still best friends. And uh, my, my mom started taking Luann on trips. It would be like, my mom did these little mother-daughter 
water trips, even before we uh, adopted my sister from Panama and they'd go to Florida and, and I'd be home working in tobacco and my girlfriend would be in Florida with my mom and my two sisters at the time, you know, like, okay. And my dad, uh, there was a time whenever uh, Luann had actually broken up with me and crushed my heart. I was probably like 17 years old and she'd broken up with me and I tried every way that I knew to win her back, but she wasn't having it and she was very cold and distant to me. And uh, we ran in, I was with my dad and we were like at Walmart. We ran into a former employee and this guy asked me, he's like, Andy, do you have a girlfriend? And my dad interrupts and says, well, he had a girlfriend, he had a good one, but he let he messed that one up. And if there was, son, if there's any smarts about you, you'd go get her back. And I'm like, dad, what do you want from me? You know, I'm trying. And there's so many ways that they, uh, they really did. They, they loved her even like, if you would, like separated from me. But all the more like on, you know, May 13th, 1995, when we became husband and wife, all the more did they love, did they love her. That they, would have, they would have loved Luann apart from meeting me. But whenever I brought her into our family, whenever I, I brought her as my, as my girlfriend and then my wife, their, their love for Luann was all the more because she loved me, their son and their grandson. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you love Jesus, if you love me, if you believe in me, if you believe in me as the one sent from the Father, then the Father has a special love for you. And that's a love that should trump all other loves. We need to be assured of that love. And let me remind you again of the context. Jesus is saying this Father has a special kind of love for those who are about to fail spiritually. For those who are about to abandon his son. But even in the midst of that, I want you to be sure. I want this to be an anchor that holds you during this spiritual storm. The Father loves you. And that's an encouragement for those of us in the room who have failed. We need to be encouraged by the Father's special love for us. Like the father of the prodigal son. When the son finally came to his senses and returned home, he didn't come and meet the father. The son had a lecture, right? The son had rehearsed a, a, a story. The son knew what he was going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And he went through the story, but he wasn't met from a lecture from the father. He said the father threw him a party. My son, right? That thought was a goner. He's, he's back, he's returned, and he throws him a party. And that's a picture of repentance. And for those of you in the room and today even, and repentance is in line and repentance is in order. Maybe you've been living a sinful lifestyle. Maybe you've made a profession of faith at some point in your life and now you've just been living for you and not for Jesus. For those of you that toy with hidden sin, even though there's no such thing because the Father sees all and knows all, those of you in the room that have been tempted and you've been tried and you've failed, if you are in Christ and genuinely saved, you can repent, come back to him. Verse number 28 Jesus said, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Uh, this is 50 times he said this, right? I left the Father, came to the earth, and now I'm going back. And the reason why he said this time and time and time again is uh, it's for the sake of continuity, if you will. 
Like, like have you ever watched a movie and you catch like a scene that's out of sync? Like you see a guy and there's a scene in the movie and he's drinking Pepsi and then the scene cuts and the Pepsi's no longer in his hand and then the scene goes back and the Pepsi's back in his hand or the milk. I remember there was a movie my wife caught one one time. I don't even remember the movie, but it's like the milk got spilled. But in the next scene, the milk was upright and there was no spilt milk and they just cut the scene in the wrong order. There's no continuity there. And you can get on the internet and you could search for all of these. And for continuity's sake, Jesus is saying the same thing over and over again because there's never a scene out of sync with Jesus. Jesus wants to make sure that they know who he is. I am God. I'm eternal. I'm, I come from the Father. I've come to this world. Yes, I was born in a manger. Yes, I was a baby. Yes, I'm now in flesh and blood that you see before you, but I'm the eternal God. I'm the second person of the Trinity saying the same thing. I've come, I've come into this world, but I'm, I'm going back from where I came from. There's continuity in that. That's why he's telling them that. Never out of sync. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things that do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. And then Jesus said, now do you believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you're gonna leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. What he's saying is you really don't know. You really don't know. You don't yet get it. You really don't yet believe. And the spiritual failure is coming. If you understood everything, then you wouldn't scatter in fear at my crucifixion. Verse 33, and I've said these things to you that you may have peace. What a great word. If you were gonna memorize a verse in the Bible, especially in the book of John, I could only think of maybe a couple of verses that may be better than this one. This is a great word. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. I'm gonna pray right now for those in the room that may just have a lack of peace. Can I pray for you for just a second? Jesus, I pray for folks who are struggling to hear through my frail voice who may be in the room that lack peace. The peace that passes all understanding. Not what this world thinks about peace as the absence of conflict and the absence of war, but I'm talking about what you're talking about here, an inner struggle. You're talking about an inner calm. You're talking about shalom. Shalom, what you instituted in the very beginning in your creation that sin is wrecked. Lord, what I pray is what you're about to say would give them that peace. That whatever they may be going through, whatever may be stealing that, whatever may be troubling their heart, that what you're about to declare about yourself will be greater than that thing. Give them faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, hearing by the word of Christ as your word is being preached even now. May it work a supernatural work to give them faith that may anchor their soul and may bring real peace to them. In your name we pray, amen. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Where is peace found? In me, in Jesus. Don't go anywhere else. 
Why go anywhere else? No other person is able of giving you peace like Jesus. Not in this world, you, not, not, he doesn't say I have these things to you that in a boyfriend or in a husband or in a wife or in children or in a better job or in more money or in a fancier house or in more cars or in an education, you're gonna have peace. No, 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 no. In one thing, in me, in Christ, and in Christ alone, you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. And all of us who are living in this world, we say amen, because we feel that. We live every day in that tension. You have tribulation, but here, take heart. Let's be of good courage. Have courage in your heart, because here is the truth of who I am. I have overcome the world. In the, over, in the aftermath of spiritual failure, know this. Take courage in this, that Jesus is an overcomer. My kids were younger. We would listen in the mornings when we do our, our morning routine, making breakfast and fixing lunches and spending some time together in the kitchen. A lot of times we play K-Love and that song, the Mendisa song would come on and be, you're an overcomer and I can't sing a lick. And I'd be like, no, he's an overcomer. Let's sing that together, kids. He's the overcomer. We're not, we're weak. He is strong. He's the one who's the overcomer. That's the good news. The good news isn't that you're an overcomer. The good news is that Jesus Christ is the overcomer. The good news is that you and I, we fail and fall short. If you're the overcomer, what happens when you don't overcome? Where you go after that, right? If you're so strong, what happens when you fail? And you gotta get up the next morning and look at yourself in the mirror and say, what on earth have I done? I got to make payments on that thing that's sitting in the parking lot or or in the driveway or whatever they may have been that you've done. What do you do after that? You need something bigger than you. (laughs) Like surely your years on this earth has taken you down a path that you need something to put your faith in that's bigger than you. And it is, and it's him. Put your faith in him. Jesus is the one Even the good news is even when we fail and even when you and I fall short and we struggle, the good news, the courage, it comes when we look to him. Robert uh, Murray McShane, he said, for every one look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. Good night. For every one look at yourself and your progress and how you're doing, how am I making it? Now take 10 looks at Christ. Look at him. Man, that's great advice. Jesus says in this world that you and I are currently living in, in this cosmos, in this place where you and I currently reside, in this world, in this cosmos, this world that is under the curse of God, it's an organized and operated and satanic uh, ruled system. That's what he means by world. It's a complex system of evil. And that's where God's special children and God's loved children, that's where you and I live. That's our address is this cosmos that is broken and it is failing and it's filled with sin and sickness and tribulation and trouble and on and on and on. And here is the truth for all of time, ever since the fall, this world has hated God's special loved children. That's the storyline of the Bible. Genesis, Cain kills Abel, right? After that, Joseph's 
brothers throw Joseph, the most beloved one of the father. They, they're like, hey, Joseph, you're loved of God and we're not, or you're loved of the father and we're not. So we're going to kill you. Oh, wait, here's a better idea. Let's just throw you in the well. Oh, wait, here's a better idea. Let's sell you into slavery and the Bedouins. I mean, move on, move on. The Israelites hated and despised all of the prophets of God. Even when John the Baptist the last prophet of God, 400 years of silence. They're praying and asking God for a prophet. God gives them a prophet. And what do they do with John the Baptist? They behead him. They murder him. Jesus, the perfect son of God comes. Never sinned, never did anything wrong. Jesus comes speaking truth of the kingdom of God. And how does this world treat him? They nail him to a cross. And so it fits for Jesus to say, listen, listen to your children. Children of mine that are loved and special loved and favored of the Father, here's the truth. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will have pressure. You will have afflictions. You will have distress. That's what you're going to have in this world. What'd you expect him to say? After, right? After 66 books of the world hating God's special loved people, what'd you expect him to say? Hey, in this world, you're going to have sunshine and rainbows and pixie dust. Good luck. No. In this world, you will have tribulation because this world hates you. But here, take courage. Be courageous because I have overcome the world because Jesus is a victor. Because Jesus overcomes this world. That Jesus triumphs over every principality and every power that raises itself up against him. Jesus triumphs over them by letting them do their worst to him. He triumphs over them by what appears to be submission to them. He lets them arrest him, beat him, nail him to a cross, and then he dies. And his strength is made perfect in weakness. What appears to be defeat is the means by which he overcomes. That when Jesus rises from the dead, it is a, it is a decided and clear victory. Jesus triumphs over sin, Satan, death, and you and I, by our faith in him, we are united to him. We are united to this overcomer. And Jesus's victory is our victory. Our victory over our own sin, over Satan, and even our own deaths. And this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you are weak, but he is strong. May our faith be in him and him alone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are an overcomer. And may our faith be securely set upon you. We look to you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you offer to us. We have peace. This that we're about to partake of, it's the means by which we can know peace, even in the midst of tribulation. Lord, I pray again a special prayer for those in the room who are in the midst of tribulation, that as they come and they eat this bread and they drink this cup, that it will remind them of whose they are. And it will remind you of the means by which they have come to you and the means by which you have overcome this world. That we will remember it's the meek 
inherit the earth. That we remember that when we are weak, you are strong. That we remember even one of your most choicest vessels prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed from him. But what you said was it has a purpose and that your grace is sufficient. Jesus, I pray that as we come and remember this, that it will be new grace for that moment. That it will be a reminder of your grace flowing from you that is sufficient for every tribulation that we may be in. And it's your grace that we experience peace. When we focus on that, when we think about that, when that becomes greater than the momentary crisis, your grace and the sufficiency of it. I pray that we remember that. I pray that we remember that he who did not spare his only son, but he gave him up, how will he not through him freely give us everything? I pray that that truth would hold true in our hearts as we remember you being given up for us. Our greatest problem was not financial in nature. Our greatest problem was not relational in nature. Our greatest problem was our sin. And that's what you dealt with. And if you've dealt with our sin in the way that you did, how will you not all the more deal with whatever else may be stealing our peace robbing our joy and troubling our hearts. What a great gospel. What great news. May it free us. In your name we pray. Amen.